How can we find meaning and purpose in our lives? Where is it hidden? How do we find it? And what is the point? That is what today's show is all about. So, welcome back to another episode of Bed Letter. I'm your host, Christian Ashleman, and this is the podcast where we chat a little bit about human psychology and mental health, social change, and cultural trends. This is the 11th episode. So if you have enjoyed what you've heard on the previous 10 episodes or what you hear on this episode, be sure to follow on whatever platform that you listen on. Bed Letter is on Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, Google Podcasts. I think we recently got on iHeartRadio as well, which is cool, I guess. I don't know who listens to that, but, you know, it's out there. It's out there. Um, Subscribing is definitely the best way to stay up to date as new episodes release so be sure to do that on whatever platform you enjoy to you know listen to podcasts on Uh, another way you can kind of stay up to date with what i've got going on with what we've got going on in the show is by following on instagram twitter or facebook it's just at c ashleman at c-a-s-h-l-i-m-a-n that's that's also a really great avenue to talk about what you think about the show what you think about the topics we're discussing your take um, you can talk about your thoughts, feelings, and all of those great things in those places. So I really do appreciate the shares. I appreciate the you know the follows, the the discussion it means a lot to me. So today's discussion is going to focus on the purpose of your life. And you know the episode this episode might run a little longer than typical just because the the uh, article that I kind of I found that or that was sent to me that I, um, wanted to go through has some really good points to make and I kind of wanted to cover all of them and cover my own points as well as we go through this. So I was recently sent or my uncle recently sent me an article that was written back in 2014 by Mark Manson. And Manson is an author. He writes really fantastic books on many different philosophical and psychological topics. Um, definitely go check him out if, if you want, if that's what interests you. He's got a lot of different, uh, you know, self-betterment type stuff, which is really, it's really positive. It's really good stuff. And it's not just your typical, you know, self-help stuff. He kind of takes a, takes a, a step back and he's really good at reframing the way that you look at certain aspects of your life and reframing the way that you see, you know, just different different parts of your life, whether it be the way that you care about things or the, you know, hope or just all kinds of different things. And so he he's really good at reframing that. He's really good at wording things in a way that's really easy to, to intake and understand. And he definitely has experience with all of these things. And so he's just a fantastic author. Um, I would definitely recommend checking out his books. But the article that he writes, it's, it's really fantastic. He, he words things in a way in this article that I really appreciate and that makes them very digestible and understandable. Um, he's not talking, he kind of has this approach to everything that's kind of this, it's kind of this like no bullshit approach where he addresses, you know, the realities of life and the brass tacks of things. It's not just this, uh, typical thing you might see where it's kind of you know feel good do good go out the front door with a smile on your face every day and be happy it's 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 not anything like that he has a really solid way of looking at at you know self-help and self-betterment that is very realistic and very um obtainable by by really anybody and and understandable as well like i've said so i really wanted to talk about his article that he wrote and kind of sprinkle in my own commentary throughout it 
um, as we go. So the article that he, he has written back in 2014 is titled, Seven Questions That Help You Find Your Life Purpose. And I know that can kind of sound like a, like maybe like a, a bit corny or kind of like some BuzzFeed garbage, you know, that you'd see where you have to click through all the different ads and all this crap just to see the, the numbered stuff. But like this article, is, it's definitely not like that. It's, it's definitely not the case here. It's definitely a, a very solid article. And Manson st- starts off by telling a story, telling the story of his brother who at age 18 walked in and said, declared that he wanted to go on to be a senator in the United States. And he kind of, Manson talks about how this declaration, this goal of his brother's really drove every decision that his brother made, right? This purpose that his brother had found dis, like helped him decide different aspects of his life, such as where he went to school, where he would work after school, during school, the different friends that he tried to make, the different connections he tried to make with those friends. Um, it, it decided where he moved and lived. It decided the locations he would go on vacation. You know, that it kind of just directed the way that he lived his life. And, you know, for 15 years, his brother made these choices according to this goal that he had, this very important goal that, that his brother had. And now, currently, his brother is, well, I guess since if this article was written a while back, his brother's probably made progress on, on this since then. But uh, his brother is, is now the youngest judge in the state that, you know, where he did this at. It didn't specifically say the state in the article, but he's the youngest judge in the state that he, he lives in, and he's going to be running for office soon. And I suspect he's already ran for office at this point, but I'll have to check up on that later. That would be interesting to see. But his brother isn't the focal point of the article or anything. It was just kind of this interesting little story. And I think that Manson includes this story not necessarily to shame people who haven't, you know, found direction in their life. Because I think that, you know, the tale of someone who who decides they want to do something at 18 and kind of goes out and, and really goes headlong into this thing and, and just knows that that's what they want to do, that's kind of a rarity. That's a very um, solo case where... You know, you don't see that very often where people just know exactly what they want and, and you know, go on and obtain it. It's, it's much more of a bumpy road most of the time for a lot of people. And so I think that he includes this story not, not to shame people who haven't figured out, but instead to show, to show some people that there are others out there who do know what they want and they do chase it in that way. And I think that the reason he includes it is to show that it takes time to get to that point. It takes time to get to those goals. And it also takes a lot of tenacity and uh, drive to get to the point where you are, you know, accomplishing these goals. And it made me think, when I was reading this article, it made me think actually of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, because I've recently been on this like Lord of the Rings binge where I've been, I've been reading the books. Um, I'm almost on the third book. And I have uh, been, you know, recently watched the movies, and I was actually watching the like the appendices, uh, DVDs that come with the extended editions. And there's this part where they talk about J.R.R. Tolkien and how he didn't have Lord of the Rings wasn't published until he was well into his 60s. And I found that to be very fascinating because a lot of times you just I you, I just wouldn't have thought that I would have thought it was a lot you know a lot earlier in his life. Um, just off of the cuff, I would have thought that. But I think it's kind of this another good example of how 
achieving these goals, these big, big ticket item goals, they take it takes it does take time, and so patience plays a very vital role in the uh, obtainment of whatever your big goal is for your life. And so, anyway, I just thought that was kind of an interesting little correlation of something I was watching last night, as you know, compared to in this in this uh, article that that I found here. But uh, anyway, so Manson goes on to say that uh, after he tells this story of his brother, he, he says that many many people are not like this. And by this, I mean his brother. They, and many people just have no idea what they want. They don't know what that career path looks like. They don't know what you know the actual career even is or what they really want to do. And I can really identify with that because um, you know I went through college changing my idea of what I wanted to do a million and one times. And still, I don't fully know exactly what that looks like, but I really like that he kind of pulls that out of his brother's stories and, and says, look, here's this example, but not everybody is like this, and here's kind of how you can get to that point, maybe. And so he kind of poses this different sort of question in his article, where instead of saying, what is my life's purpose, or what should I do with my life, the real question to ask is, what can I do with my time that is important? And I really love this question. I really, really love this way of looking at life. Because asking what your life purpose is implies that there is only one thing that you are destined for. It implies that you have, that you believe that there is this one purpose that you have to sift through and find and that is where you will find happiness or that is where you will find you know fulfillment and meaning and it again yeah, it implies that there's this designated specific task for you to do and since you know obviously in this life we have no we're not given like personalized instruction manuals for what that important specific task is and so believing that your life does have this one specific purpose make it, that question becomes very terrifying because under that ideology, what if you never found that thing? What if you never were able to to fully reach that goal, that potential, because you just were never weren't ever able to find that purpose? And so I really like the way he reframes this, because instead of asking, you know, what my life purpose is or what my destiny is or any of that, you know, garbage, instead asking, how can I fill my time with something that is important? is an incredibly comforting thought. It's an incredibly comforting question because it allows you to explore and and live in the unknown. It allows you and allows you to feel okay with living in the unknown and it allows you to feel okay with exploring different things, creating different things, discovering different things about yourself and about the world around you. And it's a question that really at its core calls for action instead of inactive contemplation because you know many times you know you'll be sitting on the couch and you'll be thinking you know what's my life purpose what's the thing and you just work through all these mental gymnastics of of what that is and it's just this inactive contemplation and what this question does that Manson proposes of how can you how can i fill my time with something that's important is something that's completely different. It actually, at its core, like I said, it calls for action right now. Because you need, you know, how can I fill my time? You're, you're somewhat wasting time when you're sitting there in inactive contemplation, running yourself in circles. And so I think it's important to, say, to, to note also that when he says, how do I fill my time with something important? I don't think that he necessarily always means 
you know, how do I solve world hunger and provide food for starving children in Africa? Or how do I, you know, start a charity and, and make, you know, change the world in that way? I think that he means something more along the lines of how can I do something with my time so that I feel fulfilled? I feel like I have meaning and purpose in my life. So I think this whole discussion, this whole topic starts by asking the correct question. And I think that that comes back to a reoccurring theme on this show, right? Where it's never just one thing. It's never just one answer to that question. And I, I, that's one, another thing I do love about this question is, is it allows you to have more than one answer for that fulfillment. It allows you to have more than one answer to that question. Because your life doesn't have to be lived to fulfill this like one you know, this one destiny or something, this one purpose, right? There, it, it, isn't, it doesn't work out that way. And it's not even necessarily a realistic way to look at your life. And so I think too often we look at our lives in this way of kind of like a narrative arc, right? Where we have in the whole scheme of our life, looking at the big picture, we see it as, you know, the beginning is exposition. We go to college, we get educated, you know, whatever you do, um, not even necessarily that, but or college, but just whatever it is that's built, that builds exposition in the beginning of your life. Um, and then there's, you know, some conflict and all that. And then there's rising action. And then we see this single climax where we reach our goal and we reach this life destiny or purpose, right? And then there's resolution after that and we live happily ever after. But really the reality is, is that our lives are filled with hundreds and hundreds or if not thousands of these, of these narrative arcs, not just one. Right? There isn't just one building climax for this giant life purpose, and then we live happily ever after. There's, there's many of these narrative arcs where we have exposition and climbing action and all of these different things, um, and then they build up to these, these you know, climaxes in our life where we do meet our goals, different ones, different, and we have different impacts and find different meaning in our own ways. And so, yeah, so Manson gets in, gets into his seven questions, right? From here, a lot of what I was just talking about is kind of just my own exposition on the, on the different thoughts I had on the beginning of his article, but he kind of gets into his, uh, his, his questions here and he words his questions in a hilarious way. I really love the way he words his questions. They're, they're just kind of silly and it kind of shows that he doesn't really take himself too seriously, which I, I really appreciate that about him and his writing. Um, and so the first question he asks is, what's your favorite flavor of shit sandwich and does it come with an olive? And I think that this question is so, so, so important. And I don't, I don't think that this topic is talked about enough. Um, and I think because the, the point that he makes right at the beginning of this question is everything sucks some of the time, right? And I think it's too easy to fall into this thought pattern of, well, I want to do what I love. And if I do what I love, I will never have a second of, of unhappiness. I will always be happy if I'm doing what I love. And uh, the problem with that is that when you do inevitably reach points where you are finding parts of whatever you love difficult, it kind of runs you into this wall that you didn't expect to, to find or run into at all. And this is something I kind of brought up on my Gen Eds episode back is like second or third, fourth episode or something. And I think that it's, I think it's very important because I think that everything has an aspect of it that kind of sucks, right? I think that, like I said in the Gen Eds episode, um, 
artists, for example, people who want to paint and do art or, you know, even poetry or whatever it is that you want to do for a living, there's a whole aspect of that that you can't just sit and write and or sit and paint or whatever and then go out and someone's going to buy your your picture for, you know, $100,000, right? You have to make the sacrifice of doing something you don't like, which is the advertising section, the part where you have to do the business side of it and start, you know, an art gallery or whatever, something that an avenue of the thing you love that you don't enjoy in order for you to find success in that realm. And so, you know, and I, I personally have experience with this in my life all the time. I mean, even, I mean, let's just take this show, for example, Bed Letter. Um, I love, I love writing this content for the show. I love, you know, broadcasting it and creating the recordings and, and putting it out there. I, I genuinely love it, but there isn't, there is a part of it that is difficult where I have to be tenacious about, um, and consistent with advertising it, putting it out there and finding the different, the different avenues to where it will be, you know, listened to or found. And that isn't always this amazing, fun thing, right? But it's something that has to be done if I want to be successful at it. And so I, I see that all the time. Just, I mean, and that's just with anything. Like I said, even in college, had to do the general education classes, going back to that episode once again. And in that, that sucked, but there's other parts of that experience where I did find passion, where I was going into my psychology classes and my history classes and stuff where I loved that stuff. So everything that you do that you love is going to have parts of it that suck. And I think that it's really important to have that realistic view of that, of just whatever your passion is, because then you're not going to be caught blindsided when the thing that you love has a part that sucks about it. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter what it is that gives you the fire and the passion and, you know, the love and the drive in your life. It will inevitably be hard and it will inevitably suck at some points. It kind of goes back to this old cliche of, you know, you can't have some wonderful, awesome, amazing sunny days without some really crappy rainy days. And I know that's totally a cliche, but it's, you know, one of the most true ones out there. There's no doubt. And so I really wanted to end this first point that Mark Manson makes by saying a quote that he has where he says everything involves sacrifice everything includes some sort of cost nothing is pleasurable or uplifting all of the time so the question becomes what struggle or sacrifice are you willing to tolerate ultimately what determines our ability to stick with something we care about is our ability to handle the rough patches and ride out the inevitable rotten days and i think that is all too true and so the second question he asks, and as part of his seven questions, is what is true about you today that would make your eight-year-old self cry? And he opens up this bit by talking about how he used to write these uh, fantasy stories as a kid, you know, with dragons and monsters and all this stuff. And he used to do that so often. It wasn't, and it wasn't because he wanted to publish them or show them to anybody. Um, he even states in the article that he rarely ever showed them to anybody. But then eventually he stopped doing this and he doesn't really remember why. And I think that kind of shows this point of, and he kind of explains this, of how we kind of tend to lose touch with what we loved as kids, right? And he brings up this very solid point as he goes through this where he says, um, we're kind of taught by society and um, our circumstances to only do something if we are rewarded for it. If we're given, you know, monetary gain, if we're given money, if we're given some sort of social credibility, 
if we're given some sort of following, you know, whatever it is. And I think that it, that, that is, that is all too true as well. I think that, you know, as kids, we do things because they give us meaning and they give us enjoyment for us innately, like within ourselves. Um, you know, oftentimes we aren't doing things because we want to prove something to someone else as kids. We're not doing something because it gives us any money or anything like that. We're doing something because it genuinely just gives us happiness and enjoyment. Manson kind of goes on and says this a little bit. He says some of that is, you know, some of that, that hopefulness, that passion that we have in our youth and as kids is kind of squeezed out of us by this need to, you know, fit in with society, this need to, you know, this desire to have money, this desire to make money, this desire to need and need to feel validated by other people. And, uh, and, and along with that, the pressures of being an adult, the pressures of, you know, be getting married and that whole game and getting, you know, starting a family and creating a career and, and finding avenues to make money because you have to be able to do that in order to survive. And, um, all of this stuff, those things kind of squeeze some of that, that youthful hope out of us um, as we grow up. And so I think that being able to channel some of that youthful hope and being able to, you know, not necessarily care what other people always think of you and, um, and being able to do these things that give you just innate joy within, within you just for that sole purpose of that joy is important to being able to find the meaning and the passion that you want to have in your life again. And so moving on to Manson's third point, his third question that he asks is, he says, what makes you forget to eat and poop? And I think that this, this point is hilarious. I love this point. It's, it's, you know, it's obviously somewhat self-explanatory, but he still frames it in a very cool way. And he kind of starts off this point, Manson does, by, by talking about how he used to be this way, you know, of forgetting to, to eat and poop with video games. And that is something I 100% can relate to um, as someone who very much enjoys video games. Um, for him, specifically, what he realized growing up, as he explains, is that it wasn't just the act of playing the games that did this for him. It wasn't just the simple act of sitting down, picking up the controller, and playing the games. He realized that it was, within the games, what he loved was he loved the stories. He loved the the tales of, of, of heroes and all that stuff. He loved the goal of becoming better at that game. He loved the, the drive to make himself more skilled at the game. And uh, he also enjoyed um, mostly the competition of it, especially you know whether he's going against the computer or the or the, uh, you know, another person, he, he enjoyed the competition of the games. It wasn't necessarily always just the, the game itself. It was just these underlying p factors in the game that made him love video games so much. And that as well, I can very much relate to and agree with myself, um, especially when it comes to stories and stuff like that. Personally, my favorite kind of games are like the role-playing games where you're in a different world and there's like a story that you're consuming and it's, it's, it's gripping and it, it takes you through all these different um, tales with this character. Those are, those are typically my favorite kind of games. And so I can definitely relate to that very heavily. And I think that, um, but he kind of brings, and this, this brings out this new, this different way of, of, instead of just saying, you know, what makes you forget to, you know, eat, it kind of adds this underlying factor to the question, right? 
And so it kind of asked the question, at least for what I understood it as, is like, what is the common denominator in the things that you like to do? Is it that you love to organize things? Is it that you love to tell a story or hear stories told to you? You know, you like to consume that kind of in, that kind of uh, art. Is it that you like to compete with other people? Is it like is it that you like to better yourself and improve your own skills at something? What are the underlying behaviors in the hobbies and the work that drive you? And how can you take those underlying behaviors? And how can you apply those behaviors to your future? How can you apply those behaviors to other aspects of your life? How can you take those behaviors and put them towards something um, that you are that you potentially want to do with your life? And I think that's I think that's the important question here. I think that's the the most important factor that he's talking about is finding the underlying pieces of the, you know, whatever it is you like to do, the hobbies that you like to do, finding those underlying pieces and applying them and understanding them. First of all, acknowledging that that's something you like to do, being aware of that that those avenues and then applying them to your life in other ways. And I think that's also a, a very important part towards finding meaning and purpose in your life. And so the fourth question that Manson asks is, how can you better embarrass yourself? And I really love the way he opens this point. Um, he has a quote right at the beginning where he says, before you are able to be good at something and do something important, you must first suck at something and have no clue what you're doing. That's pretty obvious. And in order to suck at something and have no clue what you're doing, you must embarrass yourself in some shape or form, often repeatedly. So I really like this quote because um, I think that it's it's both a very scary point and also a very comforting point, right? And mostly I think it's comforting because directly this point implies that whatever you want to do, whatever the thing is that drives you and that you're passionate about, whatever that want and desire is, it's 100% okay. In fact, it's completely necessary that you're bad at it at the start, that you're, that you start off, you know, that, that you are, it's, it's 100% okay that you're bad at it. And that's somewhat of a comforting thought, right? Nobody ever became professional at something without first failing a million times, right? And so inversely, the scary part of this is that being bad at something you love can be incredibly defeating and embarrassing which brings back in his his point of embarrassing yourself frequently. And I think that it also comes back to this previous point of sacrifice, where nothing you do that you love and are passionate about is going to come without its fair share of sacrifice. But as well, you know, alongside that, in order for something to be meaningful and be purposeful for you in your life, you have to be able to put yourself out there. You have to be able to feel that you can be vulnerable enough to take the blows and take the criticism and move forward with this desire to drive drive yourself and become better at whatever it is that you love. And this this ideology can be applied to literally anything in your life that you want to become better at, some anything that you want that you have passion for that gives you meaning in your life. And I think that the the most important part of this of this, you know, fact this point that he makes is is the idea of vulnerability. I think that's one of the most important factors in this entire discussion. And I think often, too often times, vulnerability can be seen as a negative thing or a bad thing 
or an awful experience, but I really don't think that it has to be that way. I think that um, you know by reframing the way you think about vulnerability and and especially by weighing pros and cons, the cost and benefit of it I, is is a huge factor in allowing yourself to become more vulnerable because most of the growth that you have experienced in your life most of the time comes from times when you were most vulnerable if you think back i mean i know for me at least most of the times when i can remember being um growing the most in my life in whatever area it was it involved me having to become very vulnerable to some degree um whether it be to people i didn't even know um, strangers or to people that I cared and loved a lot. It, it involves a some level of vulnerability. And so I think that that's a huge facet and a huge part of finding passion and meaning in your life is this idea of vulnerability. And I wanted to end the fourth point with another quote that he says towards the end of his point here, where he says, embrace embarrassment. Feeling foolish is part of the path to achieving something important, something meaningful. The more a major life decision scares you, chances are the more you need to be doing it. I really love that ideology. I really, really love that ideology of, of whatever, when you, if you have a set of choices before you, whichever one scares you the most, do it because that's the one that's going to make you more vulnerable. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be the one that's going to help you grow the most in whatever situation that you're in. And so the fifth question that he talks about is how are you going to save the world? That's the question he asks. And Manson talks about finding a, um, a cause or a problem and setting out to fix it, right? And he kind of talks about, you know, world hunger and, you know, all these different things for a second. And I think that this is a great ideology to have, right, of asking yourself, how are you going to save the world? And I think that's why most people start businesses to begin with. It isn't necessarily to save the entire world, but it's because they see a problem, they see they see something, and they see a potential solution, and they decide that they're going to fix it. That could be, you know, that can look like all kinds of things. That could look like creating a business to make a better version of something or something new altogether. But at the same time, I think that it's very important to look at this in another way where it's not necessarily... Um, about solving world hunger or ending wars that's a lot of people's aspirations aren't to solve world hunger and to end all the war wars and all these you know huge giant big ticket items i don't think that's necessarily what he means by saving the world i think that it can be as simple as going back to our you know the fourth question that we asked which is being vulnerable i think that you know putting yourself putting your art, putting your creativity, your passion, whatever it is that you that you love and that you have to offer, putting it out there in and of itself is one way to begin to, you know, quote, save the world. And I think that doing that has a direct impact on culture. It has a direct impact because it adds to the diversity of things that we see out there. And I think also most importantly, being able to put yourself out there and deciding to do something that is risky or or uh, you know vulnerable is it, it sets an example to others who are struggling to do the same thing because they you know might think if they can do that if they can put themselves out there and do this thing that they that they've been wanting to do whatever it is for that person's passion then maybe maybe I can do that same thing maybe I can do it too and I think that um, choosing to find 
that meaning in your life and making those risky moves and putting yourself out there and feeling vulnerable is kind of like it's kind of like a stone in a pond, right? It has this effect on you for sure, this giant effect on you, no doubt. But it also has this rippling effect where it will go out more and more and it will affect more people than you could ever even think of. I think that um, when you think about it this way, it's it's almost a travesty when someone doesn't at least take their best shot because for every 20 people who hate or dislike something, there's you know 100 more who could be potentially deeply impacted by that thing and then themselves go out and do something that they may not have had the courage to do before or may not have had the drive to do before. And so it sets this example to other people as well where we're, you know, we're all on the same team. We can all um, go out and try to find this meaning and passion in our lives. And so the sixth question he asks is, gun to your head, if you had to leave the house all day, every day, where would you go and what would you do? And he starts off with this quote right at the beginning that I really love. He says, what most people don't understand is that passion is the result of action, not the cause of it. And I really, really appreciate that that sentence right there, just that little bit, because I think that too often um, it's perceived as, it's perceived often that, that people do things because they are passionate about those things. It's almost like this uh, which came first scenario, you know, chicken or the egg, but instead it's which came first, passion or action, right? And uh, many times I think people would say, well, first you have the passion for something and then you do that action. And that's, you know, that's why you do that action is because you're passionate about it. But I really agree with Manson here where you must first act. You must first go out, spread your pieces on the board, become vulnerable, try new things, do new things and learn new things and the passion will follow. The passion will come after you've already tried these different things because you can't find the passion unless you've gone out and tried and, you know, stuck dove into the pond head first and tried all of these different things. Because if you sit on the couch waiting to be struck by passion, you'll be waiting forever. And so, you know, this comes back to this idea once again of inactive contemplation, where you can think yourself in circles till you're sick and you're anxious, or you can walk out the front door and go and do and make the choice, because in the reality of it is, if you have multiple choices, you'll never know what the other choices could have led to. So there's no point on dwelling on them. And when you go out the front door and you go and you do, that is where you will find the meaning. That is where you'll find your purpose. And so the, the final question Manson asks is, if you knew you were going to die one year from today, what would you do and how would you want to be remembered? And he starts this, I wanted to start this one off with a quote as well, where he says in the article, most of us don't like thinking about death. It freaks us out. But thinking about our own death surprisingly has a lot of practical advantages. One of those advantages is that it forces us to zero in on what's actually important in our lives and what's just frivolous and distracting. And uh, I think, you know, it's really easy to to put things off endlessly, you know, over and over again, especially when those things are really hard. And, you know, make no mistake, I think that finding meaning in your life, real important meaning, I think that that is hard. I think that that's definitely a difficult charge. There's definitely, like I said, there's sacrifice that has to be made. But, you know, being jaded and saying things like, you know, what, what, what I have to offer is too small to matter or what, you know, that you're, I'm too scared to be vulnerable or, you know, the professional workplace is too challenging to climb or that, you know, I'm only, only one in a million make it. So why bother? I think that those are all only excuses 
And they're all excuses to not take that leap and try something and to not try something important, especially to for your own life. Because the reality of it is you are important. You do have something important to offer and you owe it to yourself to give yourself your own best shot and to find the meaning in your life, whatever it may be. Because, you know, few things are worse than regret. And all of those excuses I said a second ago, all of those things lead straight to regret and and wishing that you would have tried something or done something and found that meaning and that purpose. And so I think, you know, that's where I'm going to wrap up this episode. I, it's, a very, it's a really interesting article. It's a great article. If you want to check it out, just search Mark Manson, seven, seven things on life, purpose, and whatever, you know, you'll find it. Um, It's a very solid article. Um, If you enjoyed listening, be sure to follow the podcast on whatever platform you prefer. I really, really appreciate that. Um, Bed Letter is on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and, you know, Google Podcasts, a whole bunch of other platforms as well. Um, If you found this episode interesting, um, I really do appreciate it when you share it with your family, your friends, podcast lovers, anybody you know who's interested in psychology, philosophy, um, I really appreciate that. The shares, the follows really means a lot to me. You can also follow me on social media if you want to stay up to date with the show and you know generate discussion on the show and with what's going, what we're talking about. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. It's just at C Ashleman, at C-A-S-H-L-I-M-A-N on any of those three social platforms. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it. Love you guys. Have an awesome week, and I will see you next time on Bed Letter. Bye.